Lucifer Podcast is brought to you by the Cage Club Network. For all things comics, movies, media, music, and more, check out the Cage Club Network. That's cageclub.me. Hey everybody, welcome back to all new, all different Uncanny X's for Podcasts, where we examine the Uncanny X-Men comic book franchise as it begins its multi-title 80s expansion. I'm your host, Jonah. I'm Dylan. And I'm Nico. And we are the best there is at what we do. And what we do, at least for today, is not very nice. There are so few amazing solo miniseries that define a team the way Wolverine 1 through 4 from 1982 by Chris Claremont, Frank Miller, and Joseph Rubenstein so thoroughly defined the X-Men as a line. These are some of my favorite stories ever. These were some of my earliest issues. I had one of the first printings of the hardcover and I would read this book over and over again. I didn't understand most of it the first dozen times but it is truly one of my favorite things to read and I could not be more excited to talk about it with you guys. Jonah you're newest to the X-Men of the three of us but by this point you've read hundreds of issues. This miniseries has been hyped by myself the annals of fandom. What did you think? Just a kind of cursory glance. Well I think Wolverine is a big old weeb but outside of that I was fairly fascinated with how this was written. I think writing style, the prose, Chris took a really interesting, unique directive for it. And I think it worked out really well. And I was just very interested in this writing style of the narrative and what the story was trying to portray. And I think it was a really great story. I was really impressed and really happy with the outcome of this. I'm glad you mentioned that Logan's kind of a weeb because yeah, I do feel like he would have to like rush home to watch Baruto. I feel like that would absolutely be the situation here. Dylan, had you read this in your initial reading of the X-Men? I actually hadn't. When it comes to my reading and love of all things X-Men, I do kind of cut certain Wolverine stories out. I'm one of those people that when I did start reading X-Men comics in the early mid-90s, Wolverine was so overused that I never actually went back to read very early stuff of Wolverine. So this was my first time reading it too, even though I know it has had so much hype from people. The first issue, the cover art is one of the most memorable, recognizable images of Wolverine. And I actually would have to agree with Jonah that depth of this story was very interesting. I think there was things in it that actually I wish I would have read this sooner because I feel like I can slightly relate to a few things about Wolverine, which is kind of shocking for me to say because I, I don't normally like the, the flea ball. And I think that's part of the magic of this miniseries. We could talk directly about the costumes that Logan wears, whether it's the costume of a swordsman, the costume of a superhero, the costume of a gang member, whatever mode he has to 
assume that's a very surface textual read of Logan, then there's the secondary layer. Is he a man or is he an animal? And it's on that level that Claremont is able to achieve his most startling achievement in Logan's storytelling. At what point do we separate him from the beast he becomes when the rage takes over? It's a complicated story and it's a complicated narrative that Miller and Claremont work endlessly to weave together. But before we can even talk about any of that, I want to point out a couple of interesting things about this miniseries that you might not have realized despite being a part of this podcast. Jonah, at this point, you've still only seen Sabretooth once in the pages of Iron Fist. Technically, yes, he was present in one classic issue. So at this point, you still haven't experienced Logan versus Sabretooth as an ongoing feud. Correct. Whether it's Logan and Sabretooth's feud or Logan versus Omega Red, there are so many Weapons Plus themed Logan villains that just didn't make it in here. Dylan, I'm sure you knew that, of course, Sabretooth doesn't receive an introduction to the X-Men until the Mutant Massacre. So had you been aware that none of Logan's most notable villains would be showing up in the pages of this series? I was not aware. I was pleasantly surprised. And that was another reason that I kind of enjoyed reading this book because, again, I don't know too much super early Logan. I mean, to be honest, the first couple of pages of Wolverine's narrating, I thought it was maybe going to be him hunting Sabretooth, and it turned out to be a grizzly bear. So, yeah, I was pleasantly surprised. Because so much of who Logan is can be determined by the villains he's regularly faced off with. Logan's most popular nemeses are, of course, Sabretooth, Lady Deathstrike, Mystique, he has some secondary ones like Omega Red and Cyber. And then if you're a Logan fan, you can always dig deep and find some of the more forgettable ones. But I actually really love that so much of the focus on this story was on the courtly drama and romance that generally fills samurai stories, especially as we understand them in the West. I really could suspend everything I knew Logan to be. Jonah, I know you have the cultural understanding of who Logan is, and this wasn't your first time seeing Logan with a samurai sword in hand, but this had to change the game a bit. This was the first time the X-Men have taken off the superhero masks to more than just be normal. Here, he took off the superhero mask to don a new culture. When reading Uncanny, it's brought up and mentioned that Logan spent a period of time in Japan, and... The way Chris wrote it, Logan was really respectful of the culture. He understood it. He lived through it. He wasn't one of those people who fetishizes a culture and then when they get there are really upset that nobody likes them because they have a really skewed idea of what it's actually like. But in this story, it was really refreshing to see Logan not have to abide by the rules of being a hero to reach the goal of making sure Mariko can be happy. And I think that's really all Logan wanted was for her to be safe and with someone who can at least not hit her. For my money, the story breaks down into two sides. There are men with honor and men without. We see the duality of this presented throughout the story over and over again in the form of Logan versus Shinigan and Mariko versus Yukio. Both of these dynamic opposites reflect the kinds of men and women that fill these sort of morale 
morality plays. Even though Logan's heart is filled with unmoral moments, like wishing to steal another man's wife or is prepared to commit acts of violence against her father, he's still driven by honorable causes, while Yukio is there for a man at his lowest point and picks him up when he's broken. Her true intentions are dishonorable and she keeps secrets. In that viewing, we can actually take a step back and see the play from the second issue as a bigger conversation that the entire four issues are telling. And Wolverine is playing a role here. He's not our Wolverine. He is an actor who's leapt off the stage and into the audience. He's changing how we read X-Men and he's changing the character perspective. One of the things that's so important to the consistency of the character is that Logan is very protective of animals, which is why it is so gripping that Logan faces off against a bear he ultimately has to euthanize. Dylan, you immediately brought up how you felt about that scene, that you were prepared for it to be him stalking Sabretooth or, you know, some C-list villain. But instead, the villain he was stalking was the effects of humanity, of being a man, and manhood is what he seems to be eternally trying to achieve throughout this story. Taking the superhero out of the man and putting him back in nature is a huge element of Logan's narrative. What was it like seeing that begin to unfold in its earliest days for the first time? It was... I'm probably going to beat this like a dead horse. My not liking Wolverine made me kind of very wary about these issues, but like you've mentioned, there's been a few other times throughout X-Men history where Wolverine has actually mentioned the not wanting to hurt animals and or being connected to nature. And to see this in the first few pages was really kind of, I guess, touching. I don't think I would have ever thought I'd say something that Wolverine has done would be touching, but he he is a man of honor and a man of nature and it's just neat to read how those two aspects of him play together at the beginning of this book and then throughout the entire four issues. Dylan, you make a really fascinating point because one thing that Chris Claremont has kept consistent with earlier on Canny is Logan's ability to hunt and why he hunt. In Vindicator's first appearance where he's trying to get Logan to come back to atone for his crimes in Canada or some bullshit, <laughs> Logan is hunting a deer and Storm remarks, you know, I thought you were going to kill the deer, but Wolverine says, no, 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 no. I was just doing it for the hunt and the thrill. It knows that it's prey and I'm a predator, but I don't kill for the sake of killing. Here, it's a little different in that I don't think Wolverine is not apprehensive or upset he has to hunt and kill an animal because that's not normally what he does, as violent as he is. But this is an animal that's been violent itself and is actually living a life of pain and Wolverine sought out to end the suffering of this animal so that nobody else gets hurt and I think that's really remarkable that he you can say risks but there's no no bears gonna take down Wolverine and his regenerating ability and his bones made of adamantium but still it's the idea that he was willing to risk something and by juxtaposing Logan with a feral animal that was poisoned to no longer be able to control itself left to die in the woods the parallel to Logan's own origin is remarkable and I 
believe it primes our minds, even though that's not the canon yet, to understand the argument of man versus animal. The bear would normally not be savage. The bear was poisoned. Over and over again, this idea of poisoned and waking up from poisoned berserker and brutal becomes a central focus. Everybody's got their berserker tipping point. For Yukio, it's possessive love. For Mariko, it's a need to remain honorable in the eyes of her dishonorable father, which she just can't seem to accept. The other moment that really determines that Logan is a human man defending an animal is when he decides to let the hunter, who smashes a beer glass on his head, live. Number one, I love that he owns the guy and is like, the bear lasted long. Yeah. Number two, he lets the guy live. And that's the important distinction of this Wolverine. Dylan, I don't blame you for being incredibly wary that the Knucklehead was incredibly overutilized for a good portion of time in the 1990s and early 2000s. It was really difficult to open a book without running into six claws and six of his clones. But I feel like this gentle duality of animal and man that they're trying to present over and over again, especially in this first issue through these scenes, man versus animal, followed by man versus his own savage heart. The transition to Logan showing mercy on the man, which he theoretically also showed on the bear, is compounded by his desire to get revenge for Mariko. I'm an enormous Mariko fan, as I have stated since her first appearance on the show, and there are a number of really classic Logan stories. Dylan, despite the fact that you've read so much X-Men, because you've skipped a lot of Logan, I imagine you've missed a ton of Mariko. For the most part, I have. I did go back and read some things here and there that included Mariko. Talking about Mariko and her role in all of this with Wolverine and his softer side. Jonah, what were your thoughts on these scenes with Mariko? You know, I think I have a very newfound respect for the way Mariko was written. And it's a really delicate story to tell when you're talking about other cultures that you're not a part of and that you didn't grow up in. And I think Chris really handled it well. But I think she struggled a lot with the idea of upholding tradition and honor, but recognizing that the ones who were also supposed to be following that same code aren't and are actually doing the opposite and making her feel conflicted as to what to do because she wants to continue to be the honorable person for her ancestors and her clan but she's recognizing how evil her father is and it's that choice she has to make of does she uphold tradition and stay silent or does she fight back risking her own honor i love that you bring up that her identity is so centralized around her clan because whether he is in the weapons plus program the arm forces or a member of the X-Men or for that matter Avengers or Savage Avengers or really cranky Avengers I don't know but whatever team Logan is on he is true to their code so it's not hard to understand how Logan would appreciate a woman like Mariko and her level of responsibility to the people she comes from of course the people she comes from are crap I think Shinigan represents the least honorable character in the book a foil to his daughter Mariko, who is honorable to a fault. Yukio and Logan kind of lay a little bit more in between the two of them, but Mariko represents purity. She is a delicate flower who's trying to 
blossom in a desolate place, while Shinigan is poison. Everything about him is poison. Most of his actions actually involve poison. Fucking poison. <laughs> and this battle is forever memorialized in posters, comic book trading card sets, action figures. I think the balance of Miller's severity and the gentle understating of Claremont's agile language really made this battle a cutting experience for me. It was a really powerful way to climax the first issue as Logan over and over again succumbs to his rage, his honor, the thing that he believes if he is able to protect he can remain worthy of Mariko, becomes further and further out of his reach. He knows with each strike he's losing something because he can't make Mariko see her father as dishonorable, but her father can make her see him that way. Like you said, Nico, this battle is incredibly memorable. I mean, I even knew more about this battle before I even read the issues, mainly because this battle and the battle that happens a few issues later is part of Wolverine's historic soul in X-Men history. And this entire issue showing the different sides of Wolverine, especially how much he loves Mariko, like you mentioned earlier, the fact that this book was very much like a samurai love story. I actually kind of am, I'm probably going to say that I'm going to start to really like Wolverine after reading these four issues because the way Claremont wrote these stories of Wolverine and his need to be honorable for anyone that he cares about, whether it be Mariko or the X-Men, or Xavier, or the Avengers. It's just, it's a pretty great characteristic to be attached to this grunty, bloodthirsty character. I agree. And something I would like to bring up is Yukio is a foil to Mariko and how both of them represent things that Logan wants and ultimately what he does want to choose. Yukio comes off as the wild, you know, sneaky, amazing, badass woman who kind of fights on her own terms, even though she is employed. It's her not following the code and her being more, for lack of a better way of saying it, savage, more, you know, primal and more fury driven that we often see Logan sometimes go towards when he's pushed to his extreme and I think it's a really interesting way to juxtapose two women one who represents following a code the rules honor and one who follows her own morals and doesn't care for the systems that place those codes it's so so important to remember that Yukio represents in this story Logan's inability to remain in control and and I think one of the clearest indications that we should question what's happening is as Yukio appears more frequently, the art becomes hazier, darker. At the beginning of the story, we see Logan as a warrior, as a methodical creature of agency. But as the story continues, he loses that focus and he loses that control. He stops being bathed in shadows and his character is bathed in light while Yukio stalks from the shadows. This issue represents the first time Yukio says, you're mine. And I believe you're mine is an important phrase to keep in mind with this four-parter. So much of this narrative is about ownership. And when we 
we recontextualize that story in regard to the idea that it's a question of whether or not you're an animal or a human, it's almost as if this story becomes the battle for the soul of an animal. It's as if Wolverine represents some sort of sacred being and almost like a pet. I don't know how to explain it, but he's like a venerable pet and they want to own him. Shinigan sees that destroying him would give him great agency, not just to his daughter, but to the world. Yukio sees him as a conquest and Mariko sees him as the ultimate personification of her happiness wrapped up in the duality of violence and gentle kindness like her own culture. So for that sake, it is so important to remember that this isn't just about man versus animal. This is about freedom versus shackles. And I think nobody represents those shackles more powerfully than Yukio. Every movement Yukio makes seems independent, wild, free, spirited. But at the end of the day, Yukio makes none of her own choices. Yukio is a victim of this play just as much as Logan is. She's an actor wearing a mask even if she doesn't realize it. Hello, listeners. It has been a minute, or at least it has since I've recorded one of these myself. Anyway, I'm back, and I've got a somewhat looser X-Rack from my average. But there's an X-Woman in it, so it totally counts, right? Right. Anyway, today, I'm comparing Jessica Jones, Purple Daughter. This was part of a digital-only, then-release-in-trade run of Defenders titles, and honestly, by far and away the best of them. The premise is a lot, actually. With that in mind, I do want to put a small content warning here for sexual assault and things of that nature. For those that aren't familiar, Jessica Jones is a... Let's say lower tier Marvel hero who works as a private investigator. She's married to Luke Cage, and they have a daughter named Danielle. Of particular relevance to this, and honestly most stories focused on Jessica, is her history with one Zebediah Kilgrave, aka the Purple Man, aka one of the biggest douches in the Marvel Universe. Kilgrave, and who oh boy, there's a subtle name, as the Netflix show loves to point out, has the power to control others with just his voice. He tells someone, anyone, to do something, anything, and they will do it. As powers go, it's fairly opaque. He abused Jessica emotionally and sexually and kept her under his control for an extended period of time in the past. Eventually, she managed to break free and defeat him, as heroes do, but Jessica's overall story has been one fueled by the resultant trauma and PTSD associated with her experiences with him. In the previous digital only, only in scare quotes because, of course, they published it physically later, Kilgrave returned, Jessica defeated him, and then had Captain Marvel throw him into the sun, because there's no such thing as overkill with this fucker. So now that you're all cut up, Purple Daughter begins with Jessica finding out that Danielle's skin has turned purple, just like Kilgrave's skin. Cue the obvious freak out for both her and Luke. Both of them immediately assume the worst, that Danielle is biologically Kilgrave's daughter, not Luke's. That, and that somehow Kilgrave is still alive, or alive again, because comics. Luke takes Danny away, with Jessica fully aware. This isn't like he disappeared with her child so much as took her into protective custody, while Jess sets to work finding out what the absolute hell is going on. She starts by interrogating one of Kilgrave's many children, because of course a guy with his powers has them running around, Ew. which doesn't go the way she thinks. From there she enlists, and here's why I justify this recommendation on a segment called X-Rex, the help of Emma Goddamn Frost. Much like my use of Emma to justify this recommendation, the writer kind of shoehorns Emma into this story. She isn't particularly necessary in the sense that her role had to be this particular character. She provides a random piece of anti-psychic technology for Jessica to use, which could have come from anywhere, and then offers some degree of help and or threat in the final arc of the story. But where Emma truly shines in this story and earns her place is in her and Jessica's banter. 
I had no idea how badly I needed these two characters together until Kelly Thompson gave me this beautiful, resplendent, snarky as all fuck gift. Jessica Jones plays the kind of snark that can only be matched by the White Queen. Actually, Black King here in one of the only stories where that particular plot point gets any goddamn play. Not that I'm bitter. <clears throat> Moving on. Plus, we get Luke admiring Diamond boobs. What's not to love? Anyway, my love of girl-on-girl snark aside, Purple Daughter is Jessica grappling with her PTSD, her fears surrounding her past as it relates to her motherhood, her wit, tenacity, intelligence, and drive. She's one of Marvel's more complex characters, and this story highlights that magnificently. The climax of the story is, again, a lot, but with kinds of twists I can't speak about without ruining them. The long and short of it is that Jessica Jones is a badass motherfucker who does whatever it takes to protect her family. The mystery is fascinating and disturbing, the art is some of the best Marvel has to offer, and the dialogue is top-notch. There's even a little bit of a Leave it to Beaver-style homage pulled in, just to twist the knife that much further. I can't stress enough that this was one of the best stories Marvel has put out in recent years, and is deserving of every ounce of praise I can give it. On that note, I'm out for today. As always, you can find me at Uppity Little Homo on Instagram, where I will probably be admiring diamond boobies, because that's the kind of person I am now. This story is also responsible for adding a number of important characters to Logan's gallery, including Yukio and Shinigan, who would go on to remain totems in the story of Logan's honor. As a matter of fact, I hope you liked Yukio, because this is far from the last time we're going to see her, and this is far from the last love interest she's going to have in the X-Men. I love the way that at the end of this first issue, Yukio is there picking Logan up. I love the fact that this book, the beginning of it, when Logan finds out about Mariko, how he's so, I don't want to say the word soft is what happens when people are in love, but it's just nice to see a softer side of Logan. And up until this point, we've only seen Logan as this very masculine, tough guy. And so to see at the beginning of the issue, he's very desperately in love with this woman. And then at the end of the issue, when he gets the crap beat out of him, but is still barely awake, this female shows up to pick him up and basically kind of tell him that he's not done yet. However, we are done for now. This incredible miniseries is going to take way more than just one episode to discuss. And until we return to the pages of Claremont, Miller, and Rubenstein's landmark Wolverine miniseries from 1982, Dylan, where can everybody find you online? Everybody can find me at my Facebook group for all things X-Men. That's called House of X. Or you can find me on Instagram at Warpath underscore Dylan. That is Warpath underscore D-Y-L-A-N. Jonah, where can everybody find you? In a Cameo's den trying to fight for the honor of the one I love. Not really. But you can actually find me on Twitter and Instagram at Jonah Rubino and at Jonah.Rubino. Nico, where can everybody find you? As always, you guys can find me all over this amazing network on shows like HTML, which I do with my awesome husband, Kevo, or making the themes on shows like Too Fast, Too Forever. You can find me over at Kid Riot Comics, making amazing superhero, super inclusive stories. That's KidRiotComics.com. And don't forget to check out We Are Krakoa, our amazing X-Men news portal, as well as my Instagram at NicoAction. That's We Are Krakoa. Krakoa.com and N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N on Insta. All right, guys, and until we return to the hallowed halls of Clan Yoshida, we'll see ya. Bye. See ya.